Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of John, chapter number 12. The Gospel record of John and chapter number 12. We're in a brand new series on Sunday nights dealing with the idea of how did we get our English Bible, the history of the Bible. Now, last week we took time to give an introduction to speak about preservation of Scripture. And... Um, as we're now building upon it, we're going to start defining our terms bit by bit uh, starting today. We want to lay a great foundation to encourage everybody's faith that the Bible that we have in our hand is indeed the very Bible that God intended us to have and that we have evidence, we have substance, this isn't our imagination, this isn't just a mantra, but in fact we have a Word of God that has been preserved by God into our hands. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to start in the gospel record of John chapter number 12. The gospel record of John in chapter number 12, and I want to start starting at verse number 44. The gospel record of John chapter number 12, starting at verse number 44. If you don't mind, look with me and let's see as we start this off in the gospel record of John chapter 12 verse 44. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark two phrases in the gospel record of John chapter number 12? The gospel record of John chapter 12, and I want you to highlight two phrases and put them together. Notice with me in verse number 48 where it talks about the word, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And the Bible is very clear on this that it will be the Word of God that is our judge, our final authority. Now, we'll start off with this concept, but we're going to preach an overall message here speaking about tonight manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. And we're going to start with the importance of why this is important to learn in the first place, but we're going to speak overall on manuscript evidence. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you tonight, we're praying that you would open up your Bible, that you would open up our understanding, that you would help uh, uncover this evidence for the purpose that we could have more confidence and more dependence on your word 
understanding that it is your word that will be our judge. And it is important that we have your word so we can be obedient to it. Lord, I'm asking for your spirit to fill me, to guide and direct, that you would make it clear and that you would let it be understandable. Help it to be in a way that, and present it in such a way that people could easily understand and apply. Thank you, Lord, that we could trust you in all of these things. Thank you that we could trust your word. Help encourage people's confidence in it even now. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we start off, I want to start off with the concept of our final authority. Why is it important to know which Bible we have? We know that in the English language, there are over 400 different versions of the Bible. And with that, there is a lot of confusion about what's God's Word, what is not God's Word, does it contain God's Word, is it imaginary, is it written by man? Now, all of those questions need to be answered and are very important. And to start off, why it's important to understand, we start off with this concept of final authority. The final authority. Now, there are many statements of faith found in churches that would state concerning the Bible, we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are verbally inspired by God and are inerrant in the original writings. <laughs> and that they're the word of God and the final authority in faith and conduct. So what the statement of faith is basically saying is that their final authority is in the original writings. Now we described last week this definition that the original writers are what the authors themselves wrote on a piece of paper, whether it was the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church of Ephesians, or David writing Psalm 23, that what they took pen and paper to, that paper was the original writings. Now, in that statement of faith, it has a couple of problems. First of all, we don't have any of the original writings. You can't say they are present tense, the Word of God. Now, you could say they were the Word of God, but there are no original writings left. We do not have a single shred of the original um, <coughs> writings from Paul or David or Solomon. We do not have any of the original writings. That's something we freely admit and have to understand that there are no original copies or original writings anywhere. They don't exist. A second problem is that if you say the original writings is your final authority for faith and practice, then you currently don't have any authority because there's nothing to appeal to because they no longer exist. They don't have something where I can go, well, this is what you said your authority is. Let's look at it for ourselves. Well, if they don't have the original writings, we cannot confer to their final authority. They end up having no authority, which is a very big deal. The book of Philippians chapter 2. Let me build a case for you as we cover this idea of final authority. Notice with me in the book of Ephesians chapter, or sorry, the book of Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter number 2. And notice with me, if you don't mind, starting at verse number 5. The book of Philippians chapter number 2. And in verse number 5, the word of God says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, <laughs> thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of 
man. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and of things of earth and of the things under the earth. Now notice this in the book of Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. It says that God has given him, that's Jesus, a name. And it's by this name that every knee shall bow. Now that's a pretty important name. That if at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We understand here that the name of Jesus has authority. If every knee is going to bow at the name of Jesus, well that's authority. But did you know that the name of Jesus is not the final authority? May I show you what the scriptures have to say concerning this? Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 138. Now, I'm building a case right now trying to show how important the scriptures are. We see that the name of Jesus is very important because it is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in Psalm 138. Psalm 138, and notice with me in verse number 1. Psalm 138, verse number 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Why? For thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. You see what God said there? God's name, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every knee shall confess, that, or every person shall confess that Jesus Christ is God. But do you know that God has exalted his name, or his word, even above his name? Now this is important because it's building to something here. The name of Jesus has authority. There is something above God's name and that is God's word. Now, right, we're still building a case. Go back to John chapter number 12. This is where we started off building a case for something now. John chapter number 12. Jesus Christ has a powerful name. And it's at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow. Doesn't matter where they're at, who they are, every knee will bow at Jesus' name. God says there's one thing that's above his name and that is his word. Now as we turn back to John chapter 12, Jesus is now teaching his disciples. John chapter 12 and notice with me in verse 44. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent him. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe them not, I judge them not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receive not my words hath one that judgeth him. Now Jesus said, now listen, if they reject me, I'm not the one that's judging them. In fact, he said, he that rejecteth me 
and receiveth not my words hath one that judged him. What's going to judge that person that rejects Jesus? The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him. Now, how does this play out? Well, imagine that at the judgment seat, that someone who is unrepentant, they never accepted Christ as their Savior when they have the opportunity on earth, they stand before Christ. Now, Christ is not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. And Christ says, I don't want you to die and go to hell. I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. Could Jesus just arbitrarily say, you know what? You're in. Just come in. He cannot. Because he's chosen to limit himself to his word. And it is the word that has the final say. Jesus cannot because his word says he cannot. Think about that. He has given his word as a clear platform of understanding. And that is what's going to judge us in the very end. Whether you're saved or not saved, we're judged by his word. God's word is our final authority. Whatever the Bible says, that is what's going to judge us. Let's examine at the end the book of Revelation. Notice with me in the book of Revelation chapter 20. Let's take us to the judgment seat. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 11, we begin what is called the white throne judgment. And it's at the white throne judgment that everyone who has not known Jesus Christ as their Savior is going to stand before God and they are going to be judged. Notice how they're going to be judged in Revelation 20 starting at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in those books according to their works. Notice, when they stand before God, what are they judged by? The book. They're judged what, by what God's word says. Now, this is a big deal. If everyone is going to be judged by this word, don't you think it's important that we have God's word? Amen. That we need to have God's word for ourselves because this is what is going to judge us. Our final authority is the word of God. This word is reduced to writing because then the word is not alterable. You know, we've all played the telephone game. That if I say, all right, you, you remember uh, your teacher said something. Well, this is what our teacher told us to do. And so someone else will say, well, what's our homework? And then that person would give a different answer. And then a different answer. And when they come in, nobody has the right thing. Because they're, they are basing off of what they heard and what someone told them. Well, if it's written down to writing and the writing is preserved, then we don't have to guess. We can look for ourselves and see what the Bible says. And we don't have to depend on a church and we don't have to depend on a man, a person, a priest, a pastor, a creed. We can see what the word has to say for ourselves. After all, if we're going to be judged by it, we don't want to depend on what someone may say because someone may make a mistake. But if we could read it for ourselves, then we could obey it for ourselves. Does that make sense? This is why it's important to have the written word of God in everybody's hand. Notice back with me in Psalm 138. I want to try to show how important this fight is and this idea is. In Psalm 138, this is where we had said in verse number 2. <clears throat> Psalm 138 
give me a second. I love for people to see what the Bible says for themselves, but it's also important that I get there myself. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. And notice with me, if you don't mind, in Psalm 138, notice verse 2. Now, we've already read this before. I want you to pay attention to verse number uh, 2 with me. It says, I will worship towards thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Why? For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now that's a pretty important saying according to what we said about final authority that God has magnified his word above his name. Well, it's interesting that that's not what the Bible or what other people's Bible says. For example, the good old NIV. After the King James Bible, the NIV is the most accepted Bible in the English speaking language. Notice what this verse says in the NIV. It says, I will bow toward your holy temple and praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. Why? For, your, for you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. Well, that's not what the Bible says. God says that he has exalted his word, or his word above his name. This is not what this says. Now, of course, the people who believe in the NIV also do not believe that the Bible is our final authority. And they don't, certainly don't believe that it's going to be our judge at the end. We need to find the book that God has magnified above his name because it will be our final authority. We have to have the book. And we saw last week that God promised to preserve his book so we can know that is indeed the book that we're going to be judged by. Now with that, let's actually cover some of these terms and start building a knowledge of what we believe or what is provable and why we have confidence that the Bible we have in our hand is indeed the Bible that God intended us to have and the Bible that we are going to be judged by. Before we do that, I want to make a quick pit stop. Turn back with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 19. Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, this is during the tribulation period, and it is before Jesus Christ comes back. And it gives an expression of the world at the time of the tribulation, those people who have not accepted Christ, those that have rebelled against his authority. And I want you to see something as Jesus Christ begins and prepares his way back. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he that sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. But, what is the name of Jesus here, class? Now, another question. His name is the Word of God. What was the relationship between those on earth and the Word of God? Meaning that in this, what did the Bible say their knowledge of who Jesus was? They said that no man knew his name. Nobody knew the Word of God. Now, that's important. Because that's their final authority, but no one knew it. They all rejected it and they ignored it. Now, 
Think about this. We have more Bible colleges, seminaries, bookstores, radio, Christian music, Christian television than ever before. Yet, fewer and fewer people know anything about the Word of God. Why is that? Why is it that we can have more Christian things and yet less knowledge of the Word of God? Why is it? Because the issue of biblical authority... The Bible isn't important anymore. People have left the word of God for Christian entertainment. And by result, they know less and less of the word of God. Which is a shame because it is the word of God that is going to judge us. We should be knowing more and more about the word of God. Why do we read the Bible and try to teach the Bible to others? Because we believe the Bible is the word of God. So now let's cover the actual evidence that we have. Okay, so we're building a case for it. Now let's actually talk about what do we have. What is our evidence? This is what the class is all about now. The first was the preaching part. Now let's go to the teaching part. The Bible we hold in our hands did not come to us in one package. Meaning that in uh, the apostles' days, they didn't hand someone who went to church a Bible that looks like this. We have to understand that. The Bible did not come in one package. In fact, it was given to us bit by bit by 40 different authors over a span between 12 to 1600 years. 1200 in the uh, Old Testament, 1600 for the New Testament included. <laughs> so it was given to us bit by bit, one book at the time, one passage at the time. And it was given to us bit by bit. Someone just didn't write down in just a summer and wrote, write the whole Bible. But it was in fact given to us bit by bit by bit. The Bible that we have today was put together by collecting and comparing and studying what we call manuscripts. Let's define our terms a little bit more. These manuscripts are the copies of the original writings. Now remember, we don't have the original writings, but we do have copies. Where someone had copied what the original writing had said. Now these copies, these manuscripts, fit in several different categories. Let me define what these categories are. First of all, we would have the minuscules. Minuscules, you say. What in the world is that? We'll define it. A minuscule. What is a minuscule. Now, we have more minuscules in numbers of the exact, that's a <laughs> exactant, that's a special term that just means existing copies. So, out of all the different manuscript evidence we have, we have more minuscules than anything else. So, again, we're starting to define it, starting to describe it. Why is this important? Because we have more of these than everything else. What are they? They are all lowercase letters all run together. So, in a, in a minuscule, they have something that we have, and they're all written in lowercase let, letters, and they're all run together. Why are they all run together? Well, let's kind of define it a little bit more. In the minuscules, there are no separation between the words. That means you don't have spaces. You're trying to write everything in. There's no spaces. There's no separation between sentences. Everything just kind of run right in. There's no separation of the paragraphs. It just keeps going. There's no punctuation marks. It wastes too much time. Don't you wish you could have English class like that today? 
There's no capital letters. It's all lowercase letters. And the names uh, referring to God are all abbreviated. You say, why? This doesn't sound very exact. Well, remember that paper is not readily available. We'll cover this uh, a couple lectures on. But for a Roman soldier, it would be one month's wage to get one sheet of paper. Paper is not readily available. So what paper you do have, you're trying to get as much in as you possibly can. And so the minuscules minuscules will be written and trying to squeeze as much information as you possibly can. Trying to squeeze everything you can on the sheet of paper that you have. Now, the oldest minuscules were written on papyrus. Papyrus. Anybody know what papyrus is? You've heard of that school or anything? Papyrus? What is papyrus? Well, papyrus is actually made from stalks of reed. They would take the stalks of reed and they would dry them out. And then they would press several stalks together to make a sort of flimsy, fragile type of paper. And then they would write on these papyruses, manuscript, this reeds that were put together. And it would be very flimsy. It would be very cheap sort of paper. Rarely, if ever, would you ever have today a full sheet of papyrus like this with scripture written all over. You would not find a full sheet of paper. Why not? Well, let's think about this. The paper would be a copy of the letter to Paul or Peter. So Paul writes a letter to the church of Ephesians. And so guess what? You finally, your church finally gets a copy of it. Oh, this is wonderful. And so guess what you're going to do with a copy? Are you just going to put it up on the wall and hey, look, no. Because you're going to have to pass it on. So you're going to study it. And you're going to try to write on it. And normally what will happen. Can you imagine. Think about the papers that you have. So some of you have had important papers before. What happens to those important papers? Well people would read the letter. And they would pass it on. And it would travel to the next city. For the church to read. And then it would get tore. Get damaged. Maybe you set your coffee cup on it. Now it has a little ring on it. Or maybe you know. You spill ketchup on it. Because you're reading the Bible. While you're eating nachos. You know. You ever spill stuff in your Bible or on your newspaper or your important thing? So what happens is that people are reading it and as they're reading it, it would tear a little bit. It would get stained a little bit. And people are writing copies. They're getting a copy for themselves. And so they're writing it down and maybe they would put their elbow on it. You know, things happen, right? And as it's passing by, this is again, very fragile paper. And so what would happen is that people would make a copy of the writing, but the copy would end up being in a bag left in fragments, and you'd pass the bag on while you kept your copy. Well, the fragments that would be left over would be considered a manuscript. And with that little fragment that they would have, it would be given a number like Papyrus Manuscript of number 243. And so we would be able to take the little fragments. All right, this is the fragment I have. I don't have the sheet of paper anymore because over time, people are using it and copying it. And this is what we have left because someone didn't take care of it as they were passing it on or they bent their Bible or, you know, all of you who use your Bible all the time, it's not pristine, right? I mean, you've got bent papers, you drop your Bible. I mean, even the Bible you have in your hand. I mean, I, I love my Bible, but I hate it when it falls wrong and my cover gets bent. But it happens. Does that make sense? All right. Now, men who would sit down to piece together a complete New Testament would sit down with thousands and thousands of these little fragments and they would spend years of their lives putting these fragments together and lining them up and 
examining him to make sure that we could have something that someone could read. Now we're thankful for it. Aren't you glad that you're not reading fragments and trying to put it together? Someone put it together in a copy that we could see for ourselves. But someone had to sit down and try to line them up and make sure that everything lined up the way that it should. Well, now let's cover majuscules and unseals. Majuscules and unseals. Now, these are all uppercase uh, and capital letters. So remember, the minuscules were miniature. They were written in lowercase, okay? Majuscules and unseals are written in uppercase. That makes sense, right? These also had all the run words run together. So it's all capital letters, all run together, no uh, punctuation. They're just trying to squeeze everything they possibly can into them. There's no punctuation marks. There's no breaks between words and sentences, just like the magistrals or the minuscules. The magistrals are the same. The only difference is that the magistrals are in capital letters, but they're written in block letter form. The unseals have curves in the letter for those who like fancy writing. So they have the capital letters, but they have the little curve that goes with it. Uh, those are the people who are the artists who decided, I'm going to go ahead and write a copy of it. And I want my, my, uh, my capital letters just to have a little bit of flair to it. Those would be called the unseals. Now, one of the major differences between a or minuscule and a majuscule and unseal would be what they're written on. What was the minuscules written on normally? Papyrus. Now, most of the magistrules and the unsules were written on vellum. Anybody know what vellum is? It is what? Sheepskin. Sheepskin. Um, uh, calf skin specifically. Baby calves, not old cows, but baby calves. That's because that leather would be soft and easy to write on, not tough and stretched out. Now, why would we have more complete unseals and majuscule vellum manuscripts than the papyrus? They don't break down. Very good. The leather lasts longer than the papyrus paper. So we will have more majuscules and more uh, unseals together than what we would have the minuscules. The minuscules would be in little fragments. The majuscules we could still have in more leather um, things that we could have more of the book together. Now, these vellum skins would be sewn together piece by piece until they made up a scroll. An entire scroll is often called a codex. Now, once again, we're defining terms. You're going to run into this idea of a codex later on. And we want you to know what it means. A codex would be a scroll made up of several sheets of vellum sewn together. And we have several codexes that we could refer to. Now, all of these so far, whether it's the minuscules, the majuscules, the unsules, all of these are going to be manuscript evidences that we have that we can compare together. Does that make sense? Now, let's cover the cursives. Aren't you glad that we have all these different stuff? Amen. Now, cursives, basic, are written in script form. So someone decided that instead of block letters or lowercase letters, they're going to write them out in script form. That's pretty much the only distinction. They're still written on vellum. They're just written out in script form. That's the cursives. But then we have other things called 
lectionary. Now, all those other ones were part of our manuscript evidence that we have. Lectionaries would be used as backup proof for the evidence that we have. What is a lectionary? Well, lectionaries are portions of scripture that were found in the hymnals. So someone would have a hymnal and they would have several songs and then they would have a page full of scripture. Now, remember that most people of those days did not have a Bible of their very own. So lectionaries were placed in the hymns to allow for responsive reading. So, all right, let's sing page number 596, Victory in Jesus, and we'll sing Victory in Jesus. And then we would turn the page and there would be a portion of scripture from the gospel record of John or from the gospel record of Luke. So that way we could read it together as a church and be encouraged because people didn't have a Bible for themselves. So this would allow the people in the church to be able to have and to read some of God's word during an actual service. These people might not have a copy of the gospel record of John, but they had six uh, chapters of the gospel record of John found in the hymn book so they could at least have some of the word of God for themselves. This is a lectionary. Now, there are hundreds of thousands of pages from these lectionaries. Now, these lectionaries we don't necessarily use as manuscript evidence, but what we do use them for is to make sure that the Bible that is put together is accurate. That we could say, all right, I've taken all these manuscripts, we've lined them up together, and we've compared scripture with scripture. Now we can look at the lectionaries. Hey, look, we got the same thing. They match. We're doing good. Does that make sense? It's something that we can go ahead and use as evidence, a checks and balances accuracy, nothing like being able to put a puzzle together and then match the picture and say, hey, look, it's the same, right? Then we also have something called ancient versions. Now, we translate our Bible from the Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. However, we also have ancient versions. These wouldn't be used as manuscript evidence, but once again, as another proof and evidence that the Bible that was translated was exactly correct. It's a way to double check the work. Let me kind of explain some of this. Very early on, in the early days of the New Testament church, the Bible was translated into the different languages of the day. Why? Because not everyone read Greek. So they would translate it into the language of the people where they were at. Does that make sense? For example, Syrian and Latin are the most two are the two most notable versions in the ancient world. Remember, in the New Testament day, what was the world empire that was ruling? Rome. <laughs> Rome, remember? You, Jesus was Christ was crucified by the Romans. What did the Romans speak? Latin. Very good. And so, of course, it was translated to Latin so the people could read. Another important part, which we'll cover in about two lectures from now, would be the center of the Christian world, Syria. And so it was translated in Syrian because that's what the people spoke at, at that time. The oldest translation that we have in its entirety is called the Syriac Peshito. Now, this is going to be very important. Why? Because... The Syriac Peshito was written at 150 AD. Now, we're throwing some dates at you and we're going to explain why this is important. The Syriac Peshito was translated in 150 AD. Why is this important? Because the gospel record of John and John's writings were finished in 90 AD. So, 60 years 
after the Bible was finished being written by the human penmen, they had a complete copy of the Word of God translated in Syriac, where people could read it for themselves. And guess what? The Syriac Bushido matches our Bible in book and form and says the same thing. We could go back all the way up to the very beginning. Isn't 150 AD pretty close to the original source? You bet it is. And so here is a copy of a different version. We don't use this to translate from, but we do use it to say, hey, look, we were right when we translated. It matches. We have double check our work. Does that make sense? That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? Now, there was an old Latin Vulgate. Vulgate means in the common language, the vulgar, the common language. That goes back to 150 AD. Now, that's pretty close to the source too, right? 157 AD, and guess what? It matches our Bible, the old Latin Vulgate. Now, this is where a switcheroo begins to take place. Because in 1482, the Catholics hired a guy by the name of Jerome. And Jerome wrote a Latin version for the Catholics that, guess what? He also called the Latin Vulgate. And so, guess what? Today, in seminaries, I mean, cemeteries and Bible colleges and um, people who are educated and all those things, they're going to try to teach some student that the Bible they have in their hand is wrong because the earliest version of the Latin Vulgate is older than anything else. But what they mean is that this Catholic version, they're making the switcheroo. This is the Catholic Vulgate. This is what we have and it does not match your King James Bible. But guess what? The oldest Bible we could find in translation is the Latin Vulgate. Are they the same thing? They are not. But because they make the students assume that they are, it causes people to doubt the Word of God. Well, maybe I don't have the Word of God. Maybe there's something else out there that I should have. Now, that's not very honest, is it? So today, the scholars will confuse people and claim the Latin Vulgate is older than anything else out there, even though the Latin Vulgate and Jerome's Vulgate are too different versions. Actually separated by almost 1400 years. That's quite a difference in time. In addition, we have something called ancient writings. We're going to spend a lot of time on this in the next couple lectures, but let me kind of explain what we mean by this. We have the writings of the church fathers, the people who lived in the first century, the second century, and the third century. So pastors and teachers, they would write letters one to another, as they should. And as they would write letters one to another, they would often quote scripture and refer to scripture. Now, we don't agree with all the church fathers, but they're important because we can see what Bible they're quoting from. We can see what they're telling each other. As they said, well, you know, in the gospel record of John, it would say this. And you know what Jesus said, found in the gospel record of Luke. And how our dear beloved Paul said in the book of Ephesians. And they would actually call the book out and say what they read and say the, quote the verse. And guess what they're reading from? The same thing we have. So by their writings, we would have proof and evidence of what Bible they were reading from. It matches what we say. We're going to spend more time on that in the next couple of lectures. 
But let's kind of wrap up what we have. Again, today, what I was trying to do is introduce some terms to you. So as we have the vocabulary, we can start building up with more evidence to it. But as we just talked about manuscripts, let's come to some conclusions. When you line up all of these sources, all of the manuscript evidences, and you put them together, guess what? Every verse in the Bible we have is accounted for except for three verses. That's pretty good. Every single verse except for three. That we could go through all of those pieces of paper, remember? All of those vellums, all of the papyrus. We could line them up and we could account for almost every single verse of the Bible we have. Which is kind of interesting because so many versions are missing hundreds of passages and verses. That's not good. We can line up and say what Bible they have, the same one we do. We don't have a single manuscript that dates from the times of the apostles or the following generation in its complete entirety. We're honest about that. However, what we do have is 5,400 plus pieces of manuscript evidence from that time that we can line up together and see this is the Bible that they had at that time. Does that make sense? Now, that's a lot of manuscript evidence that they can line up all these Greek manuscripts from different times and different places and line them together and say, guess what? They say the same thing. And we could put them together and have all of our verses in our Bible that we have in our hand accounted for. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it? So when all the manuscript evidence is placed together, we have exactly the Bible that we have in our hand. Now, why is this important? It helps us knowing that there's evidence that our Bible is correct and preserved because the Bible is our final authority, and we're going to be judged by this Bible. So what does that do for us? Well, if we're going to be judged and held accountable to what this Bible says, you need to know what it says for yourself. And you need to have confidence knowing that this Bible is the Word of God. Remember that there are going to be some people that said, No, I'm not going to accept Jesus as my Savior. I'd rather believe in something else. Well, one day you're going to stand before God, and you're going to be accountable to what the Bible says. For those of you who are saved, you are still going to stand before Christ and Christ is going to give an account of your life. Why didn't you obey me? Well, what am I supposed to obey? What this says. Does that make sense? God made it so that way we can know exactly what we're supposed to do. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. You can know what you're supposed to do. Now, that brings us down to the point. Why do people don't want to read their Bible? Because they don't want God's authority over their life. But I'm sorry to say, whether you want it over your life or not, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, there's one thing that is placed over his name and that is his word. So let me ask you the question. First of all, do you believe that this is God's Word? You should because there's evidence for it. This isn't our imagination. There's evidence for it. Well, if you do believe this is God's Word, are you reading it? You can't stand on promises if you don't know what they are. And you need to be reading it to find out what God wants for your life. And then, are you obeying it? Some people will say, Preacher, I don't have to go to church. Okay, good. But the Bible says that you do. Either you're right 
well, the Bible's right. You both can't be right. Well, are you going to be judged by what you think or going to be judged by what God's Word says? Well, I don't have to read the Bible. Well, you could think so if you want. But God says it's the only way we know Him. And we're going to be judged by His Word. You Shouldn't you read it? Well, I don't have to. And you fill in the blank. If the Bible says it, we're going to stand and give an account. Now, everyone in America has a Bible available to them. What excuse can you give for not obeying God? May I perhaps show you another passage? Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs... Proverbs chapter 24. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 24. And notice with me in verse number 11. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 11. It says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. Now let's cover this first. It says, If thou forbear. The word forbear here carries the idea of crossing your arms and turning your back. If you forbear, if you ignore, if you forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. So imagine this scenario. Let's say that we're outside and you're outside and you happen to see one of our precious young children not paying attention and they run across the street. And you happen to see a big semi coming its way and you can see that the child is going to be hit by the semi. And you can see that they're imminent danger and you forbear. I don't want to watch what's going to happen. So I'm just going to turn my back. I'm going to ignore the problem. And that child gets hit by the truck. Are you guilty? Yes, you are. Because you could have done something. And you did nothing. You forbear. Notice what it says. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, and now you stand before God and give an account, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not. Do you know that there's a lot of people who are going to attempt to say, I didn't know that's what I was supposed to do. I didn't know I was supposed to go to church. I didn't know I was supposed to give. I didn't know I was supposed to read my Bible. I didn't know. I didn't. You know, some people are going to try to give that excuse to God. But notice what it says here. Behold, we knew it not. Doth not he that pondereth the hearts consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? Do you know that excuse is not going to fly? Because he said, you should have known I've given you a Bible. And you've had access to it. And for those of you who show up to this church, you've heard that the Bible is true. And God's going to say, no, I gave you every opportunity. You should have known and you should have obeyed. And when you stand before God, that excuse won't fly. And you are going to be judged according to your works based off of what the Bible says. So you understand this idea of final authority is a big deal. Because we need to know that the Bible we have in our hand is exactly what God said. And we can have proof on it. And if it's exactly what God said, we are also responsible for obeying it. So, we come to the idea. This is a serious matter. 
Do you first of all believe that the Bible is God's word? You should because there's evidence. It's not my opinion. It is evidence. God made promises. He made proof. Second of all, are you reading your Bible knowing that you're going to be judged by this word? Third, are you obeying what the Bible says knowing that you were going to be judged according to this work? It all comes down to final authority Do you accept that God has that authority? Why do people reject God's word? Why do people fight against God's word? Why do people dare to say you're wrong? Because they don't want God's word to have authority over their life. This is all an issue of the final authority in your life. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.